Boris's big reshuffle, will it really make a difference to the way in which this country is run? I was late for work today as eco-idiots block the M25 once again. How can we stop this from happening day after day? And I'll be joined on Talking Pints by Kate Howick. Well, one of the mysteries to me, ever since Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, is why he kept appointing to the Cabinet such really very low-grade people. Now, I mean it, because it seemed to me there was lots of experience and some considerable talent on the back benches, and I felt it was a deliberate Cummings-Johnson policy. Make sure there's nobody in Cabinet that can actually be a threat to you. Or, well, of course, in the case of Rishi Sunak, who's been playing Father Christmas ever since the pandemic began, well, he has, of course, now emerged as something of a rival. But, frankly, the performance of some of the Cabinet ministers has been cringe-makingly awful. It was time to clear out the dead wood. And given that the Prime Minister is off to America next week, firstly to the United Nations in New York, and then off to the White House to meet Joe Biden, I guess this was the right moment to do it and get it out of the way. So let's have a look. Let's have a look. Let's, let's get Darren McCaffrey, our political editor, and let's see. Darren, who's in, who's out? Well, in many ways, uh, Nigel, you're right about reshuffles. Prime Ministers do try and avoid them most of the time. And ultimately, there are a ton of two types of reshuffle, aren't there? There are reshuffles which are forced upon governments, where ministers resign or there's a lot of political instability. Think of Theresa May. And then there are reshuffles where prime ministers try to reassert their authority. And Boris Johnson, frankly, has got an awful lot of authority and he has been asserting it today. Not least of all, on the former Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, he is out of the Foreign Office and will become the new Justice Secretary and Lord Chancellor. Uh, now, there were very fraught discussions between Dominic Raab and the Prime Minister, both in the Commons and here in Downing Street, about the role he would take on. It's pretty clear he did not want to leave uh, the Foreign yeah. Office. Uh, somewhat, though, I think as an attempt to assuage him, he was given that post of Deputy Prime Minister. Now, constitutionally, it doesn't really mean uh, very much. It means he will deputise for Boris Johnson at PMQs, for example, that we effectively had that role in all but name uh, before. So I think that is a significant move by the Prime Minister. Liz Truss, the former International Trade Secretary, is taking over that position. She incredibly po popular within the party and has seen has done a pretty good job in international trade in the last couple of years. Moving away from that, we can talk uh, about uh, the replacement that uh, Dominic Raab has, Robert Buckland, uh, Robert Buckland, of course, the former uh, Justice Secretary, widely respected, it must be said, within the Conservative Party. He seems to be dumb, Nigel, purely because they had to make way for Dominic Raab, the lawyer and former prisons minister. Now, in the least surprising news of the day, Gavin Williamson, the former Education Secretary, is out of the Cabinet altogether. He's seen has done a pretty, frankly, bad job as Education Secretary. In fact, in Downing Street's statement this afternoon, in which they were praising ministers for their work, no mention of schools at all when it came to Gavin Williamson. That fiasco with the A-levels and GCSEs last summers and a number of gaffes, countless yeah, gaffes, endless. have cost him his job uh, within the Cabinet altogether. I mean, I think in the end, I mean, I can't, I can't imagine he even gave a shock, shock uh, to, to Gavin Williamson. In his replacement, though, Nadim Zahari, the former vaccines minister, perceived as doing a very good job, clearly, with the vaccine rollout over the last nine months or so. And really interestingly, Nigel, this is a guy who came to the UK as a nine-year-old from Iraq, couldn't speak a word of English, and now he is the UK's 
uh, Education Secretary. Pretty amazing achievement for Nadeem Sahari, and he will be, I would have thought, a pretty effective minister in education. Elsewhere, Robert Jenrick is out as housing uh, minister, uh, again has had his controversies, particularly around meetings he's had with Richard Desmond and others. He's replaced by Michael Gove, and this, is, I think, is one of the most interesting appointments. Yeah, isn't it? Actually, in many ways, it's a bit of a sideways move for Michael Gove, but it's a signal from the government about the importance they really want to place on housing. Uh, that's why he's also been given this job title of levelling up. And I suspect Michael Gove, who's seen as a doer, um, a bit of an ideologue, but someone who gets things done, a reformer, uh, that in housing he may well uh, be pitching up in your back garden demanding that yeah. more houses are built across large waves of... Oh, yeah. Oh, oh Darren, and, I think and, and coming another... to a greenfield near you soon is Michael Gove. I've no doubt about that. But <laughs> can, can I just ask, just, just go back to one of the names you mentioned earlier. What I don't quite understand is Liz Truss was seen to be doing a very good job, uh, you know, post-Brexit the negotiation of trade deals, the grandfathering in of those deals that already existed with the EU, but new ones like Australia, and we've been told a lot more to come. Why on earth move somebody who's doing a very good job on something that is vital in Brexit Britain? What's the thinking there? Well, I think it, to a large degree, two things. First of all, there was a sense that someone needs to be blamed for Afghanistan. Certainly the Prime Minister is not going to take responsibility for that. That fell heavily on Dominic Raab, and I think there was a sense that he needed to move elsewhere in the Cabinet because of that. That then creates a position, and in effect, when you create that position, you have to think who is going to fill it. Now, Liz Truss, as you say, has done a good job, mm. but at the end of the day, Foreign Secretary is... You know, it's a promotion, and it is also part of that, to a large degree. She's the chief diplomat for the UK now. A lot of her job will be going around the world trying to woo people uh, to Britain's side on various issues, and I would have thought, to a degree, on trade too. And I think what's also really interesting, Nigel, about this reshuffle is that when you look at the correlation of popular ministers within uh, the government when it comes to grassroots support for Conservatives... Uh, there's, there's, there's this incredible correlation where they've all kind of somewhat been promoted. People like Liz Truss or Priti Patel holding her job mm -hmm. as Home Secretary. It's almost as if Boris Johnson is trying to appease his core supporters uh, to a large degree. And the other really interesting appointment today, I think, is that of Nadine Doris. Now, mm. she's been promoted to the Cabinet. She's taken over from Oliver Dowden as Culture Secretary. And my word, as you well know, Nigel, she's got pretty frank, forthright and frankly, ideological views uh, about a lot of aspects of culture, not least of all strong words on the BBC. She's not their biggest fan. She's talked in the past about cancer culture, about snowflakes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, about tearing down statues. And I suspect we will hear a very robust and vociferous new culture secretary making those arguments within governments. So, Darren, in conclusion, uh, some of the dead wood has gone, and probably deservedly so. Um, we've seen more women promoted to very prominent positions and a slight political shift towards the right of the party. Would that be accurate? Yeah, I think that is pretty fair. And I think in the whole, as I come back to what I said at the start, this is Boris Johnson's attempt to kind of mould the Cabinet yet again in his vision for where he wants to see the government go throughout probably the rest of this Parliament. Ideally, he would like to keep these ministers now in place, I would have suspected, to the next election. And when you look at some of those key appointments, I think it is about appeasing 
um, or indeed actually supporting some of uh, the kind of key people within the cabinet that are popular with uh, conservative yeah. voters and conservative party members. It is, I think you're right, probably a slight shift uh, to the yeah. right, uh, promotion of some kind of big Brexiteers to a large degree. But in the end, is this going to change the fundamental direction of the government? No. Probably not. And why is that? Because the man at the top, Boris Johnson, remains in his job. And at the end of the day, he is the one who's so dominant within government at the moment uh, that irrespective almost of some of the shuffling around in cabinet today, it's not really going to make that much difference, I think, to the future direction of this uh, government. Probably, apart from that one area, I would say, of housing, where I think Michael Gove will really want to make his mark. Yeah. Darren, thank you very much indeed. Great analysis there from Darren McCaffrey. I think he's absolutely right. Uh, and the question I'm asking you, and please let me know, gbviews at gbnews.uk, is will this make any difference to the way in which our country is governed? And I don't really think that it is. Uh, but I wonder... Boris Johnson is well known for not liking sacking people. Um, and I wonder how tough this was for him to do today and what, and what lies behind it. What really is the thinking? And I'm joined now by Alex Crawley, former political advisor to Boris Johnson. And Alex, welcome to GB News. Hi, Nigel. Thanks for having me. Not at all. So you worked with Boris when he was the mayor of London, and that's going back quite a number of years. You've worked with him in intermittent periods throughout. You've even been with him in Downing Street for a period of time. So you know this guy really, really well. Is it true that he doesn't like sacking people? I think it's fair to say that he's not a lover of confrontation. Yeah. Uh, as, let's face it, most people aren't. I think, yes, he doesn't love doing the sackings, or he certainly didn't about a year or so ago. But I think he's probably getting used to it by now. Um, at, at the end of the day, this is a guy who likes being the man in charge. And you know, reshuffle day is about him. It's about his power, how he wields it, who he promotes and who he yeah. gets rid of. So in that sense, uh, he's probably quite comfortable with that. Yes, I mean, he's got rid of Gavin Williamson from education, gone completely, Robert Buckland, Justice Secretary, gone completely. Robert Jenrick, Housing Secretary, gone completely. And Amanda Milling, co-chairwoman of the Conservative Party, gone completely. So it's relatively ruthless, isn't it? It is. This is basically, I think most prime ministers get one big reshuffle. And I think this is Boris's. Uh, it's the one where you can make your most sackings without too much trouble. It's the one where you put probably four or five big beasts on the back benches for them there to remain for a while. Uh, and kind of from here on in, you get into a different phase of the premiership, whereby you've got some serious people on the back benches. As trouble begins to mount, they suddenly are the ones that you start looking at and thinking, mm, there might be a bit of trouble there for, for, for Boris. Yeah. Up until now, his bench critics have been vociferous, but small in number. I think they've grown by about four or five um, tonight. And I've been struck, Alex, uh, during the lifetime of this parliament, uh, just how big a role in our national debate is played by Ian Duncan Smith. Uh, you know, China, uh, right through to many other issues, where Ian Duncan Smith is there uh, saying things. On lockdowns, uh, we've had David Davis, who's been extremely critical. Uh, but, I mean, there, for example, are two backbenchers with considerable uh, experience of being cabinet ministers. Why does Boris not want to get very experienced people into his team? 
Uh, I think it's probably fair to say that Boris likes to kind of keep the soul of the Tory party for himself. Uh, if you look at the likes of Ian Duncan Smith, David Davis, you could very much make a strong argument to say that they are also, to some extent, the keepers of the soul of the party. And we're in a very odd situation where we have a conservative government that isn't really doing very conservative things. Uh, some of these things have been forced on it. Others are, are there by, by uh, choice. Uh, and, and really, we, there's kind of three big political vacancies at the moment, policy-wise. Uh, there's a vacancy for the party of home ownership. There's a vacancy for the party of low taxes. Uh, and there's a vacancy for the party of small business. These are things the Tory party used to be. Uh, but it's not so much anymore. No. Uh, and there's a bit of a battle at the moment for the soul of the party. Uh, is this something that we are still, as a party, willing to fight for and stand up for or not? Uh, at the moment, the direction of the government uh, suggests not. Uh, and I think that's going to be a big area of internal debate over the next uh, year, well, 18 months. I'm sure it isn't. Alex, I've been saying for some time that Boris Johnson is a great cheerleader. You know, put him up on a stage in a campaign, you know, wave the pom-poms, and he's great at that, and he cheers people up, and he makes people smile, and we've been through too many years of grey, dull politicians, and Boris ticks all those boxes. But is he actually a leader? Because it seems to me, I could maybe have got this wrong completely, I mean, you know him better than me, it seems it's a government that follows what Focus Group says rather than a government that strikes out boldly and leads and invites the public to follow them. Uh, it's interesting uh, you use that phrase, follows focus groups. Actually, I think if, um, if the government actually listened to focus groups, um, they would have a very different set of policies. Um, because what, what people in this country want, for example, to own their own home, uh, to have lower taxes, etc., is not what the government is doing. I mean, you talk about leadership. Look, there are different styles of leadership. There is the Boris style, which is as you say, cheerleading, uh, setting a general tone. And then there's the managerial. Generally in this country, when we've had managerial leaders, uh, Theresa May, Gordon Brown, for example, it hasn't actually worked out that well. When we've had cheerleaders, uh, sometimes it can work. But as you see in times of great crisis, it does cause problems. And uh, look, Boris has many strengths, but one of his obvious weaknesses, which no one would dispute, is that he's, he's not a manager. Yeah. No, well, I think that's pretty fair. Alex, thank you very much indeed for joining us. That was Alex Crawley, former advisor to Boris Johnson over many, many years. Well, that's it. The reshuffle is done. I don't think it's going to make much difference to the way the country is being run. Promotion for women, a slight move politically to the right. I don't think it really makes a whole lot of difference. And I have to say, some of those, some of those that have been sacked and are gone, I thought were frankly just embarrassment. So on balance, it's probably a slightly better cabinet tomorrow than it is today. Uh, but for those of you worried about house building, Michael Gove will be on the case. Now, I was late for work today, 45 minutes late, because of eco-idiots blocking the M25. I was angry, but imagine if I'd been going to a wedding or a funeral. Imagine I'm running my own business. I'd be livid. So what is going to happen to those protesters? We'll debate the M25 protests in a moment.
Well, Extinction Rebellion had been around for a few years, causing chaos, but a new group emerged this week. I'd never heard of them. Insulate Britain, they're called, and the idea is we need to insulate our houses so that we don't use as much energy and so that energy bills are more affordable. Well, if we didn't have a 30% green subsidy on energy bills to begin with, um, I might have some sympathy with the argument. But here we are. Before we get to the real row that I saw on the M25 this morning, let's get some of your reactions to the reshuffle and whether you think it's going to make any difference to the way the country is run, because I don't. Andy says, Boris Johnson's biggest mistake was not to sack Priti Patel. Ah, that's quite deliberate, because she's going to carry the can for the Channel crisis, which, from what I can see, is likely to get worse. And that's why she's been left in that position. And, hey, who else would have wanted the job at this moment in time. John on email says, we all know that the real cabinet is made up of Johnson, Javid, Sunak, Gove, and of course, Carrie, the rest, oh, you cynical person, the rest are spectators. And Pauline on email says, Johnson should have done us all a favour and shuffled himself out of government. That isn't going to happen in a hurry, I can tell you. One more I'll take. Sandra says, I'm extremely disappointed of the useless reshuffle. I will not be voting for the Tories at the next election. Sandra, a lot of people say that in the midterm and then change their minds come the next election. Not always. I'm joined by Home Affairs and Security Editor Mark White. Mark, I mean, it didn't matter to me. You know, I was 45 minutes late. It didn't really ruin my day. But I, I, I did think about the funeral thing. I'm going to a funeral on Friday and I've got to go round the M25. And if I miss that funeral, I'm going to be pretty upset about it. Yeah. Um, but today saw this group. They were out on Monday. They weren't out yesterday. You know why, don't you? It was raining. Oh, right. It was raining. It no, I'm certain of it. Yeah. It was yeah. raining. They weren't out yesterday. They were out today. But they did cause a serious incident, didn't they? Just talk us through that, please. Yeah, this was uh, an incident on Junction 9 of the M25 uh, so between... Le Leatherhead... Yeah, Leatherhead, Rygate and yeah. Surrey, which is... It was between two protest sites on Junction 8 and Junction 10. Uh, there was a serious accident, a multi-vehicle accident, in which a woman in her 50s was airlifted to hospital wow. with what police have said are serious injuries. Now, at this stage, Surrey police say they are not giving any commentary on what the cause of this accident might have been, but those commuters who were stuck, snarled up in the traffic there, who witnessed it, were in no doubt. They believed that this was an accident caused by the roadblock up ahead because what they said was that there was a huge tailback, uh, stationary traffic, and then vehicles coming, careering in behind them uh, and causing this pileup. So... Uh, it's absolutely a very serious development. It was inevitable, I think. People yeah. realised that any kind of protest like this on a busy motorway had a real risk of causing some kind of an accident like this. Uh, and perhaps Insulate Britain might think again now, given that there have been consequences like this. But who knows? They don't seem to be too apologetic for what they've no. done. They, they seem to want to continue. I had them with on the show on Monday. I, I had one of their leaders on the show on Monday. I mean, very briefly, but no. I mean, it seems to them that uh, it doesn't really matter what short-term damage they cause. They believe they have a higher cause. How many roadblocks were there around the M25? Uh, a number in different areas. So there are three different areas. There was two in Surrey Junction. Yep. 
8 and Junction 10. The we Kent, also... The Kent one that I saw. <laughs> we also had more protests, yes, at Dart, yeah. Dartford and yeah, Kent. 21 people arrested there. Uh, 32 people were arrested in Surrey. Yeah. And another 18 people were arrested up in Hertfordshire, just at uh, Junction 23... Uh, at South Mims, which also was affecting the M, uh, the uh, M1 mm -hmm. uh, motorway, or the A1M, I should say, mm -hmm. uh, and not just, of course, the A1M. All of the feeder roads in these areas going into this orbital motorway were all badly snarled up. And it wasn't just the fact that, well, it took two or three hours for the police to clear the last of the yeah. protesters. Once that happens, then the traffic needs to get up to kind of speed again and takes a long time, as you know, for the queues to disappear. Yeah, and, and motorists actually are pretty angry at the police yeah. because they feel the police should be acting more quickly. Yeah, I mean, the, the police feel that they're caught in the middle. They have a duty of care to ensure that those taking part in these protests are not harmed, even though they are self-harming in that sense. You know, it's they, they that have decided to embark on what is clearly a dangerous practice. Uh, but the police have that aspect to try to control. They don't want to go in and make arrests if they don't have enough officers there because they can't legislate yeah. for what someone might do. They could run off into the carriageway, uh, it, right into the path of an oncoming vehicle, and then the police would be in trouble for that. So they have to wait for proper numbers to get there so they can contain the situation properly, make sure no-one runs off, then go in and arrest these people. But, of course, they're arrested, processed, and then they're let out. Yeah, because 100 were arrested on Monday... And 71, 71 today. 71 today. So they're processed and released. That's it, yeah, because, I mean, they're, they're committing an offence under the, uh, the Highways Act, which, you know, in the scheme of things, is not a serious offence. It's not a custodial offence that would require you to be detained. Uh, very unlikely that anybody would fined? be detained overnight. Yeah, potentially they will be fined for this going down. Uh, potentially. Where, where, potentially, I guess. It's up to the Crown Prosecution Service, the police will review the situation, put a case before the CPS, and then it will be up to them to decide. Uh, but I think, given the nature of these protests, Nigel, on a motorway, a busy motorway, uh, with all of the subsequent delays and the dangers involved, it's probably likely that they'll face, at the very, at the very least, uh, some kind of action. Community service may be fines. Right. Mark, thank you very much indeed. Well, I don't know what you think at home about this, but... People are not just having their personal lives, not just having their social lives severely interrupted unnecessarily, uh, but a lot of people, you know, self-employed people, running businesses, this is costing them time, and time, of course, is money. It's affecting those people too. And I, I feel there should be some form of proper deterrent, and whether that is big fines, whether that is considerable amounts of community service, I don't know, but there needs to be some form of deterrent. And I'm going to watch really closely. Let's see what happens to these 170 people over the course of the next few weeks. Some will say, oh, Nigel, you know, if you make it, if you make it a really, really tough penalty for doing this, you'll encourage people who'll want to be martyred. Well, my experience of these things is very few people actually really want to be martyred. Some might be encouraged, but the vast majority, I suspect, would stay at home. But something must be done because otherwise they can do this to us day after day after day. Now, Shemima Begum, you remember that name, don't you? The Londoner who ran away as a schoolgirl to join the Islamic State with two of her friends. Uh, she appeared on television this morning 
pleading for forgiveness. Yes, she apologised for comments she made about the appalling 2017 Manchester Arena bombing. This is what she told the BBC in 2019 when she was asked about that outrage at Manchester. It's a two-way thing, because women and children are being killed back in the Islamic State right now. It's kind of retaliation. Their justification was that it was retaliation, so I thought, OK, it's a fair justification. Well, I have to say, I thought they were pretty appalling words back in 2019. She has been stripped of her citizenship, and I, there's a lot of argument over this, but I think rightly... Well, currently, having had that citizenship revoked, she's campaigning to get back into the United Kingdom uh, to, be, to, to have a, a court hearing here in this country. And this morning, she appeared on Good Morning Britain, uh, looking very different to the way we saw her last time. Here she is this morning on ITV. I'm asking the British people to forgive me because I made a mistake. I also have lived in fear of ISIS and I also have loved, lost loved ones because of ISIS. Honestly, I the only crime I think I committed was being dumb enough to come to ISIS. And even that can be refuted because I was 15 when I came. I think I could very much help you in your fight against terrorism because you clearly don't know what you're doing. Oh, a nice, nice little tailpiece there. You clearly don't know what you're doing. And she may have been 15 when she went over and joined ISIS, but... She was over voting age when she made those appalling comments about what happened at the Manchester Arena. But interesting, isn't it? She's completely dressed differently, no longer in Islamic dress, now almost mimicking Emma Raducanu, the winner of the US Open at the weekend. Uh, and I suppose, from a PR perspective, she's playing the game well. I hope the government doesn't weaken. One slightly positive thing. I have to say, I did find John Burko's speakership of the House of Commons, particularly during Brexit, absolutely deplorable. Uh, he did not act, uh, it seemed to me, in a neutral way whatsoever. I felt he devalued that very important office. The new speaker, or relatively new speaker, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, is made of very different stuff. And tonight, there is a reception happening in the House of Commons, and it is our relationship with China. And Sir Lindsay Hoyle has said to the Chinese ambassador that he is not allowed to attend. He cannot come to that reception in the House of Commons all the while two peers and five MPs who spoke out against the persecution of the Uyghur Muslims. And as a result of that, those seven British politicians have been banned from going to China, banned from going to Hong Kong, and that even applies to their children and their families. And I thought, actually, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, standing up there for decency, standing up there uh, in a way not to appease communist China, and well done him. And I think with this and so much else he's done in the chair, in the House of Commons, he's brought back some decency and some integrity. Now, in a moment... A sort of retired politician, well, no longer in the House of Commons, but she spent 30 years there. Yup, on Talking Pints, I'll be joined by Kate Hoey.
It's that time. Yes, it's that time of the day. It's Talking Pints. And tonight, I am joined by Baroness Hoey of Lyle Hill and Rathlin in the county of Antrim. Yes. I'll call you Kate. Kate, welcome. Welcome. Thank you To very Talking much. Pints. That title, it's um, incredibly grand for somebody that started out as a Marxist, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it is my old school, my old primary school, my old first church, church where my parents were married, Lyle Hill and where I spent my childhood and loved rural country area. And then Rathlin is a, an, the only inhabited island off the mm. coast of County Antrim, and I've got a cottage there, and I've been going since I was about five. So I was a bit greedy and had the two titles together. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly reads very, very posh, incredibly yeah. impressive. Very Kate, we'll come to the House of Lords um, in a moment, and, and, and I, you know my rather deep scepticism about the makeup of its membership. I keep hoping you're going to come in. I us. don't think that's going to happen to me in a hurry, but we will come to the, yeah. to the Lords. But the interesting thing is, you know, you were elected in, back in 1989, 30 years. Yeah. 30 years in the House of Commons. How did you bear it? Well, it got increasingly worse, particularly those last few years in terms of what was going on over Brexit. And I think that's when I knew that I... I mean, I could have stayed on, probably, but 30 years was a nice time to go. And, frankly, um, it, had got, it had changed so much. You know, when I came in first, there was no television. We'd waited for ages to get a room. You know, you, you, everything was done by letter. You had time to look at your, your correspondence and mm. answer it. Everything changed so much. And then... The, the kind of people in the House of Commons changed. You know, I remember sitting around the tea room with all the old miners, ex-miners who were MPs and mm. people who'd worked uh, in factories and really feeling I was for, the 41st woman out of 650-odd. So you did feel... And I never felt discriminated against at all because some of those older men were really what I call just decent working-class guys who just accepted you as you were and... Um, I enjoyed all that. And then it changed and we got lots and lots of young Because you people. had... So Thatcher was Prime Minister when you first were there. Yes, and then it was. Then it was the major years. Mm -hmm. And then it was New Labour. Oh, Tony Blair. And not many ex-miners anymore. Very different kind of people selected. But I suppose from a Labour perspective, Blair, Mandelson, Campbell... They did turn it into a winning machine, didn't they? Oh, there's no doubt about it in terms of success yeah. for the Labour Party getting yeah. into government, you know, to win three elections as he did, yeah. uh, was a success. And, you know, the irony is probably the Iraq war was what changed the whole attitude mm. to him. Mm. Uh, but there's no doubt about it. He, he, he sh and, and the thing that I felt most pleased about what Tony Blair did, and it's probably a minor thing now, was he changed the position on Northern Ireland. Before that, the Labour Party had a position that said, we will campaign for a united Ireland. He changed that position to say, it's, you know, it's not up to us, it's up to the people of Northern Ireland. And yeah. that fundamentally changed. Yeah. And of course, that led on to uh, discussions and debates over what was happening there. So and in the early days, there was some preferment for you, wasn't there? Oh, well, I, yeah, I, I, I was in the home, home office as a Home Office Minister with Jack Straw's yep. uh, Home Secretary. And then what was supposedly my dream job, well, I mean, I loved it. I was sports minister. I know. Uh, and I, I mean, loved, a sports minister I, that likes sport. Well, exactly. That was the <laughs> difference, and that's why I didn't last very long, because I wasn't, although I liked football, I wasn't prepared to go along with the whole obsession that... 
Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell and had about football was how they would get working class votes. And football got so much of the publicity and the grassroots sports were just mm. kind of ignored. And, and you know, I, we could have done so much more. I mean, we did start to change things. I got education, schools, what was happening in school sport and what was happening in my department to at least talk together because yeah. that was ridiculous. I was a sports minister, but I had no say whatsoever and was going on in And, of course, you had a, a test match ground in your constituency, yes, the Oval, very, right yeah. at the heart honorary, of... Honorary vice president, lovely, yeah. lovely. Uh, and we got a lot of outreach work there too because it was important, you know, we were just a couple of miles away from Brixton. A lot of young Afro-Caribbean yeah. young people needed to be able to get to play cricket. And, uh, I mean, Surrey did reach out very, very well on that. Um, so, and John Major, of course, a member oh, of Surrey. Yes, and I remember when he lost his, um, you know, when he lost the election, yeah. he, came, he came straight down to the Oval to watch. And he still, he still is a, a cricket do you get, fan. Do you get on with John Major? Well, I did, very much. I think, like on a lot of issues, e, the EU and Brexit, you know... And you, began, your poles apart. Your poles apart. Yes. On a lot of other things, he was very, very good. And, of course, he was absolutely responsible for getting the National Lottery going. Yeah. Without him, sport would not have got all the extra money for the, uh, you know, the high-level sport. So he's... But I don't think we agreed on, on, on Europe <laughs> at all. No, no, absolutely not. Or, or with any former Prime Minister, come no, to that. No. But, Kate, no, I remember, I remember you in that role, and I remember thinking, wow, this is exciting. Somebody doing the sports job that loves sport yeah. and wants more young kids to I was a PE sport. teacher before I took I know. my economics degree. So, you know, I did care and understand. Yeah. And I felt very strongly that, you know, up at the top level of government... They weren't really interested in what was happening at the grassroots, although if you don't get that right, you're not going to get the, um, you know, the, the achievement at the higher level. And after that period of time, mm. were you destined to be a backbencher? Uh, well, I'd always been quite independent, even when I was a minister, you know, and you just, sort of, you just tried to hide away when there was something happening that you didn't want to support. But, you know, you were, you were so busy with your job, you didn't feel too strongly about some issues. And then once I was on the backbenches again... Um, you see, I had rebelled back in 1992 on the Maastricht Treaty when John Smith yeah. wanted us to uh, abstain, and I voted against. And I got... But you've probably been Eurosceptic longer than I have, I think. Well, no. <laughs> well, I've but then the Labour Party was, yeah. wasn't it? Well, the Labour Party was, and we had, you know, I, my early days, people like Austin Mitchell, who's just sadly yeah, died, I saw and that. people in... in, in um, uh, you know, I remember Brian Gould, people like that were there. And there was a... a and it just all changed with this sort of Blair idea that we had to be good new Europeans, which was, I think, the beginning of the, you know, the retreat from understanding what yeah. working-class people thought. Well, you campaigned hard in the referendum. Uh, we had a few little uh, rallies, didn't we? Well, we did, and we worked our hardest. And, very hard. And, and as it turned out, there were two campaigns. I'd have, I would rather, at the beginning, mm. they'd come together, but I think ultimately it didn't really matter. Maybe it was a benefit. Um, we did what we did, but just talk me through that three, three-and-a-half-year period in the House of Commons. I mean, you know, I was obviously in the European Parliament watching it, and, I, and I, I've got the feeling that sort of when people look back at this in 100 years' time, it's one of the most shameful periods mm. of our history. What was it... How nasty was it in there? It, there was a very undercurrent of, of unhappiness and nastiness around... Um, and for those of us on the Labour side, you know, there were very few of us. Mm. There were more who were quietly, perhaps, thinking what we were thinking, but for all sorts of reasons didn't say so. So there was a small group of us. We had to put up with, uh, you know, being, being um, treated as if we were some kind of pariahs because we 
uh, kept supporting, first of all, the need for a referendum, and then when the referendum result came, actually saying, look, you know, we promised we were going to implement this. Yeah. And I'm afraid um, from the day, day one, really, it was obvious that certain elements within the Labour Party, and not just the Labour Party, were determined to try and stop and yet, Brexit. And it was nasty. And yet, Kate, you know, there were four, four and a half million, maybe five million, Labour voters that voted Brexit. Yeah, I, and, and some of their MPs were, you know, standing up, almost having a, a, a go at their own constituents for daring to uh, think that leaving the EU might millions be the right of thing them. to do. Um, millions of them. So, you know, we warned then. I mean, I remember speaking at rallies and, and, and saying things like, you know, we, we are betraying our Labour voters mm. and Labour will, will suffer. And, uh, of course... I was. I predicted that we would win on the Monday on the Daily Politics. I predicted that Leave was going to win, and was looked at as if I was absolutely <laughs> mad. <laughs> but if you'd been out on those rallies, you when you were there, yeah. and we saw those people who came out and were so. Passion, it, it was, passion it was actually. I find it quite moving. I yeah. find it because people come up to me and say, mm. "Oh, I'm really pleased as a Labour MP here," you know. Yeah. And those few of us, I think we did our bit to really show that there was a, a, a strength within oh. It's changed, and I don't think Labour will ever really get back to that feeling that well, they're I, representing working-class people. I said for years that I was going to cause an earthquake in British politics, that the UKIP insurgency yeah. would cause an earthquake in British politics. And I, I'm kind of of the view that the Labour Party still hasn't recovered from Brexit, still hasn't worked out what it is. I mean, how do you assess Keir Starmer's leadership? Well, I, I'm not very impressed. I mean, I don't think he's—I um, don't think he's going to rock the world, as they say, or change the. You know, his his whole attitude is very much um, almost a kind of steady as you go kind of thing. Uh, and also, he's—he doesn't have the charisma no, to, I agree. to. And you do need charisma yeah. if you're going to. What he doesn't have, I, I reviewed one of the books by him, the Ashcroft book, and I said, you know, it comes across as if he doesn't really have the ability to persuade people. To go with them if they're on a diff if they don't agree with them, and um, I, you know I don't think Labour will be in power with Keir as leader. It's going to take some time. And you're right; they haven't accepted Brexit. No, they still have. Still, and it, no. it's the same within you know yeah. in in the House of Lords as well. There's a just a, it's it's a, there's a kind of almost bitterness there now, which is almost mm. worse than during the campaign of just. Mm. You know, we lost and I mean, we don't war, like it. I mean, the war is over. We've, well, got, to, we've got to get on now with it. Now we've got to get on and make it work. And, of course, I would be quite critical sometimes of, our, of the government for not capitalising so yet enough. But maybe... Bre I mean, COVID has yeah. obviously been a Well, COVID's been a problem. But also, I mean, I, I, I was just a bit mystified today that I thought, well, the one person everyone said was doing a great job was Liz Truss. And, you know, her job was there to negotiate the trade deals and to move us on way beyond the deals that the EU did with us. And she's been promoted today to Foreign Secretary, well, which I, is good for her, I guess. Yeah, I suppose but, there's some kind of linkage there. Uh, Anne-Marie Tre Trevelyan yep. was a, a, a Brexit, strong Brexit. So that's a good, a good uh, result. But, I mean, he... You know, the Prime Minister is quite... I don't think he's very good at being nasty, you know, to people. <laughs> and I, I mean, he did seem to surround himself after he first became Prime Minister with a lot of people who had actually campaigned strongly to remain. And I, I'm not sure... I think most people within the Cabinet have accepted that we're leaving, so uh, yeah. left. Yeah, and even if you look at today's Cabinet it's, reshuffle, it's much more Brexity than it was 
you know, before. Yeah. So, so yeah. yeah, I mean, look, the country's accepted it. There is no exactly. going back. The problem is Northern Ireland, of course, a subject dear to your heart. Yeah. And I know you've written and spoken extensively about the Northern Ireland Protocol. What do we do? Well, I keep feeling that Lord Frost... And I genuinely think Lord Frost wants to sort it. I think Lord yeah. Frost is, understands it. It wasn't really his, his, his idea in the first place. I mean, I blame Theresa May very, very much for the whole... Because Boris, I mean, whatever we think of Boris, he was given a very bad hand. Oh, he, wasn't he, he had. I mean, I, I, you know, he, he. We were going to probably have a good chance of losing it in Parliament after all, all those three and a half years. And I think he, he. I think he genuinely didn't think the EU would be as nasty as they turned out to be. Although that was a bit silly of him. Yeah. And secondly, <laughs> I don't think he. I think he really did think that we could get out of it quite quickly. I mean, I still think we've got to get out of it. There's no point tinkering. It's not about trade to me. It's all about constitutional. Of course. And that's, you know, but more and more MPs, Tory MPs too, are understanding that it's got to go. And, you know, as I said, and Geoffrey Donaldson said, and Jim Allister said, and lots of people have said, the Prime Minister has to choose. He has to choose now between stability in Northern Ireland, keeping to the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, which is very much about balance, yeah. or the protocol. He can't really have both long term and he doesn't have a lot of time. No, it is, it is deeply concerning. Mm. Um, and whether we're going to see... You know, an increase in loyal, loyalist uh, militant behaviour. Um, well, I think they feel they've not been listened to, that they've yeah. been ignored, and that the only way you get anything sometimes has been what some of the Republicans have done is threaten violence. I know, and that's the worry, isn't it, really? It is. It's very worrying. On a happier subject, so you decided after 30 years you'd done your bit, and you really had done your bit, and well done you... Because uh, it's not the easiest job. People think it's the, people out there think, oh, it's an absolute cinch being an MP or an MEP. It's not, is it? There is actually some hard work. A huge amount of work. Pity if you have an area that's very, you know, parts of it very deprived, lots yes. of people with problems, and um, you know, the MP sometimes is the last resort. Do you, do you become like a social worker almost? Well, I think there is quite a lot of that, and and maybe you know, some people would have said maybe I was too constituency focused and that if I'd sort of you know forgotten a bit more about that and done other things and not been quite so rebellious I could have been you know gone much further up the career ladder but I you know I've enjoyed it I I miss my constituency involvement but I don't miss this sort of constant constant mm. um you know, and push of from and as you say now with unlike when you joined with email and social media yeah. and it just never stops. Yeah, well, I just wonder uh, what kind of person I will want to become an MP, you know. Mm. I mean, it is going to be probably more the younger element who just goes yeah. straight from university and that's not good. No, I agree with you. I, I think people have had proper jobs and been in the real world. It, it, it's, yeah. uh, it's far better to have a mixture of people, as you said, you saw when you first went there. Yeah. But now, of course, you, you are... <laughs> Baroness Howie of Lyle Hill and Rathlin in the county of Antrim. <laughs> and you're in the House of Lords. I mean, this is very grand, Kate. How do you, I mean, seriously, I look at the House of Lords and there's a couple of hundred of Tony Blair's mates and a couple of hundred of David Cameron's mates and goodness knows now how many... Lots of, of Lib Dems. I mean, 104 Lib Dems. I mean, how do you get on there? How do you what do you think about the place? Well, I was lucky because we came in a group of us about a year ago when COVID was restrictions were very high. So we kind of kept going in when we were allowed to. And there were very few of us there. So we got to know the place very well. Mm -hmm. Very different, obviously, from the Commons. Um, but people are very nice, most of them. But there is a kind of hard core of people who would look at someone like me and mm. someone like Claire Fox and mm. some of the others who came in as being you know, not quite 
really... Not, pro not, not proper thought. Well, because, yes, you know, <laughs> still, you know, we have that awful thing, Brexit, hanging around. <coughs> um, but, no, it's, its job... I mean, I, its job is to um, scrutinise and so on, but what we can't have is the House of Lords actually stopping something um, that the government has had but in its Kate, manifesto. It can't but it, it can't... No, I think it... It's far it can't too big. Go on the way I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous. I've gone in and I'm saying it's far too big, but there were an awful lot of people put in after the, um, yeah. the, the, the you know, the Liberal Democrat, yeah. Conservative government. But we'll do our bit, and we'll still, I'll still well, speak out and please be promise independent. Me, please promise me that you'll be a rebel in the House of Lords. Oh, I am already being a rebel. <laughs> well, I, I have nobody to rebel about because I'm a, what's called, um, and you know, I'm not a, I'm not a crossbencher either because they're very much full of. Yeah. Academics and yeah. diplomats. I'm um, non aligned, non affiliated. That's non -aligned. it, non affiliated. So you, you don't have, you can make your own views. <laughs> well, thank you for joining well, thank us. Thank you here very today. much. And thanks to you for everything you did on Brexit. Well, I, I believed in it with all my heart and soul, and I still do. That was the non aligned Kate Harry. <laughs>
is September the 15th. And in 1940, that became known as Battle of Britain Day. It was the day when the Luftwaffe threw everything they had at us, and in response, we threw back everything that we had. On that day, Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister, visited the command centre just to the west of London, in the bunker, and asked Keith Park, asked Keith Park, how many more have you got? And Air Vice Marshal Park replied, I am putting in my last. And what he meant was that at that moment in the afternoon, on the 15th of September, there were no spare Spitfires and Hurricanes. They were literally all up in the air. And had it not been for what became known as the few, there is little doubt that Hitler's army would have crossed the English Channel. The Americans could never have entered World War II. And I suspect we all would have been speaking German, living under some monstrous regime for many, many years to come. Uh, and thank goodness, thank goodness, the few did stand. Well, somebody who knows more than me about this, um, and I hope can give us a bit of a celebration of what today meant uh, in history, is Leo McKinstry, historian and author of the Second World War trilogy, Spitfire, Hurricane and Lancaster. Leo, I think we've got the right man, haven't we, for the 15th of September? I hope so. Uh, it, like you, I get very fed up with, uh, and thanks for having me on, like you, I get very fed up with people denigrating British history. And this was the great moment in our modern story when we stood up to Nazi tyranny, we stood up to Adolf Hitler, and we changed the whole course of mankind. As you say, if we'd lost that war, the Germans would have gained, lost the Battle of Britain, the Germans would have gained aerial superiority over the south of England, and they would have been able to launch their vast invasion armada. And we didn't have, after Dunkirk, we didn't have much of an army to defend our coast. And the Navy, if the Germans had air superiority, they could have beaten the Navy as well. So it was a crucial moment in the story of mankind. And there's no doubt that Hitler was deadly serious about that invasion. I mean, he'd collected 2,000 barges to bring his troops across. They were they developed their submersible tanks to go across the English Channel. So the idea that Hitler was, which has become slightly fashionable, that Hitler was never serious about the invasion isn't true. And uh, so we really needed those Spitfires and Hurricanes to defend our land and defend mankind and democracy from tyranny. And am I right, Leo, to think that it was after the 15th of September, that they realised they weren't going to get fighter dominance of the air and then switched to bombing. That's absolutely right. Well, they actually, there was a crucial turning point in the Battle of Britain just before the, the 15th. And on the 7th of September, Hermann Goering launched an all-out attack on London. He, he thought that fighter command had been basically beaten on the ground. And so they, they would turn to the blitz. They'd started the blitz on the 7th of September. And though that was terrible, especially for people who lived in the east end of London, it gave fighter command breathing space to bring in more trained pilots to repair their planes and to get more planes out of the factories. So that those crucial few days in early September gave fighter command a new yeah. impetus, and, and that's what so shocked the Germans on the 15th. They thought that they were fighting a beaten force, and suddenly this vast aerial armada came up from fighter command's bases and smashed them out of the sky. 56 German bombers were shot down, which, you know, in a single day is a tremendous defeat for the Luftwaffe. And two days, it's very telling that two days after the 15th, Hitler withdrew the directive Operation Sea Line and yep. postponed his well, plans for invasion. Thank you for coming on, Leo, and sharing 
this anniversary with us and to all of you at home. Let's be a bit more proud of British history. Coming up next, it is Colin Brazier. First, though, the weather.